Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, we are in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, I, you know, normally I just go through chapter by chapter by chapter. And just this, the book of Peter, it just been, felt like I just need to slow down a little bit and dig in a little bit. So that's kind of what we're doing this morning. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read this to you, and uh, you can follow along if you want. It's in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And just to give you a little bit of a background, if you weren't here last week, um, uh, Peter, excuse me, is in is introducing uh, the believers that he's writing to, the, the concept and the reality that, hey, there have always been false prophets in Israel that, that always were trying to you know thwart God's work. Um, and he says there will be false prophets among you in the church. And it's true down to our day as well. So there are false prophets. So he introduced the whole concept about the false prophets and their destructive doctrines. Um, but then now he says in verse 4, for if God did not spare, oh, let me back up, verse 3, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds." Then the Lord knows how to, del to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the, for the day of judgment. And uh, we'll stop right there. And this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so, uh, like, we, like I mentioned earlier, Peter has, has been warning the church about these false teachers. Hey, they're going to be in the church. And, uh, you know, you can look around in Christianity today in the church, the, the universal church in general. And, uh, yeah, there's false prophets, false teachers in the church. And, and some of them seem to prosper. And that's kind of what Peter is saying. You know, they may seem to prosper. They may seem to gain a lot of followings, uh, followers and stuff. But you know what? Their judgment is coming. And so that's what uh, he's talking about, the judgment for the false teachers. And, and in this passage, Peter gives us three examples of God's judgment, three examples that we can look at, and then five things that I gleaned out of there that we can learn about God's judgment. So that's dealing with the judgment. He talks about the judgment of false believers, and then he also talks about um, the deliverance for the believer, and, and Peter gives two examples. I think I mentioned Paul earlier. Peter gives two examples of God's deliverance and uh, four things that I think we can learn about God's deliverance. So that's what we're going to be kind of looking at this morning. So beginning with the first example of God's judgment, and that is the angels who sinned. You might go, oh, who's that? Uh, verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. We'll stop right there. These angels who sinned, they were cast down into hell. That Greek word hell is the word Tartarus. Tartarus. It's the deepest abyss of Hades. It's like the, the it's like the, the 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 deepest darkest dungeon in hell. And and well, who are these angels who sinned? Well, to kind of gain an understanding, first of all, we need to understand this: Satan or Lucifer, as he's called, uh, he was a created angel. He's a created being. He's not, the, he's not the equal but opposite, you know, to Jesus. He was an angel, a created angel. Um, in fact, and this is kind of interesting to me, in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 19, there's a prophecy about Lucifer, and it describes him. And it describes him in verse uh, 12, I believe it is. He says that he was the anointed cherub who covers the anointed cherub would cover. I thought that's kind of interesting. Because if you recall when Moses 
was instructed on Mount Sinai to build the Ark of the Covenant, and he was to build the make, create the mercy seat all out of hammered gold and one solid thing, and and on the the mercy seat, and and he was told that this is, or we're told, I should say, that everything that Moses created there is a pattern and a copy of heavenly things, and so. Here's in Exodus 25, I'll just read it to you. This is the, the, descript, the description or the, the pattern that he was to build of this, this, this mercy seat, which was basically a covering over the Ark of the Covenant. It says, And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. Interesting. And here in Ezekiel 28, it says, you are the cherub who covers. And I don't know, I'm not saying he's one of the cherubim that was depicted on the mercy seat, but it's an interesting, interesting thought anyways. But So Lucifer was an angel in heaven. There's some other prophecies uh, that describe him. Uh, very beautiful creature, uh, very glorious in his, you know, just how he was created. But he became prideful. And in Isaiah 14, verse 14, he says this, and it's recorded in Isaiah 14. It says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So he's seeing the worship. He's up there. He's created a worship, the Heavenly Father. And, and he's seeing that now he wants it. So that pride has entered his heart. And he ends up leading a rebellion in heaven. And uh, we're told in Revelation 12, verse 4, that a third of the angels rebelled with him. And so uh, Satan's not bound yet. He's roaming the earth. You can read that in different scriptures. Uh, he'll be roaming around until uh, Revelation 20, verse 2. And that's when he is uh, chained for a thousand years during the reign of Christ on earth, the millennial reign of Christ. Um, demons are fallen angels, and uh, they join. They are the ones that joined Lucifer in this rebellion, and uh, they also are freely moving around the earth today, leading people to, to leading people astray. Paul describes them in First uh, Corinthians chapter ten. There's other passages, but he deals with it kind of in depth in First Corinthians ten. So there are the Satan's free to roam right now. I don't understand why, but he is. Demons are free to reign right now, and you, you can see the aftermath of what they do in the world today. Um, but evidently, there are some demons, some fallen angels, who did something so wicked that God cast them into Tartarus, the deepest, deepest abyss of hell, um, and they're waiting there, remaining until the day of judgment. You go, man, that's kind of interesting. Um, what did they do that was so bad? beats me. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, Jude writes uh, his letter and Jude's pretty, you could take, you could take Second Peter, you could take Jude and put them side by side and it's really a commentary on, on each other. And Jude says this in verses 6 and 7 of Jude 1, he, and he describes, I think, the same thing. He says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So what did these angels do? Well, they did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, and they went after strange flesh. So again, that's like, hmm, what is that talking about? Uh, well, if we go to, and you can, you, if you want to turn your Bibles there to Genesis chapter 6, um, you don't have to, I'll, I'll be reading it, but you can. Um, there's a passage here that's a very interesting passage and describes the world prior to the flood. And it might be, I'm not saying it is, thus saith the Lord, but it might be connected to what Peter is describing here about these fallen angels and what Jude is describing in his letter. 
in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. It's possible that what we're reading about here in Genesis 6 is what Peter is describing. Uh, these, the, there was some kind of a, a demonic activity prior to the flood where there is this, this uh, sexual relations that was going on. And you might say, man, that is too far-fetched to believe, and that's fine. It's not a salvation issue. I'm not. It's not a doctrinal statement or anything like that. Um, whether you believe that or not, that's fine. It's not a big deal. But here's the point. The point, first of all, is this that Peter, I think, is bringing up. First of all, God's judgment is certain. God's judgment is certain. These fallen angels are reserved for judgment. Um, there, uh, the lake of fire, by the way, you know, we call hell, but it's the lake of fire. You read about it in the book of Revelation. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's meant for them. It's reserved for them. And what Peter is, I think, trying to get across, it may seem like these false teachers are prospering and they've got a great following and, and it seems like they're getting away with what they're doing, but their judgment is sealed they're going to be judged. So their judgment is certain. And I think that's the first thing Peter is trying to get across about God's judgment is that it's certain. The second thing, and I think related to these angels, is that God's judgment is impartial. Not even these angels who sin. Now these angels, angels are in certain ways higher than man, a higher order in the creation. They are they higher than men, and even though they sinned, they can't escape God's judgment. And they're, they're higher than man. God has reserved certain ones, these certain angels, uh, in hell for the day of judgment. Of course, all of them at, at one point will be cast into the lake of fire. As Jude says, these guys, these angels, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And again, it may seem like false teachers and are very prominent in their ministries. They're, they're very influential people. They're very wealthy or they're very powerful people. Um, but God's judgment is impartial. Just remember that. The second example we get of God's judgment is the ancient world. The ancient world, that's the world that existed prior to the flood described in Genesis chapter 6. Look at verse 5 of 2 Peter 2. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of, on, of the ungodly. You know what's interesting about that? You read about Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness. He's described here. And uh, for those of you that aren't here, uh, you're listening. I've got this picture up on the screen for those that are here. That's a that's just kind of incentive to come. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and they see these. The, it's a it's a picture I pulled off the internet. But basically, Noah's standing there on some logs, and it looks like he's preaching to a bunch of people, and they're kind of mocking him. Um, and maybe that's where they get that picture from, because it says here Noah was a preacher of righteousness. What's interesting is. There's no recorded words of Noah in Scripture. That's, to me, that's interesting. He's called a preacher, but, I mean, I'm called a preacher, but, you know, I talk, right? <laughs> There's no recorded words. So how is he a preacher of righteousness? And I think it's simple. It's how he lived his life. 120 years prior to the flood, building that ark, being a godly man in a, in a very crooked generation, I heard sometimes, you know, I've heard, maybe you've heard it before, that, you know, our lives, we're to, our lives are to basically preach a sermon, and sometimes we can use words, but, you know, mainly it's, it's how we live our lives. How you live your life today in this culture, you're preaching a sermon to people around you. Even if you're not saying something, you're, you're preaching a sermon. So anyways, Noah's a preacher of righteousness. Jesus says this about the days of Noah, and it's in Matthew chapter 24. It says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And the point in this, what Jesus is talking about here, is that it's like life was going on as normal and suddenly the flood came. And this is the second point or the third point that I think uh, that we can learn from this is that is God's judgment is swift. Now, you might say, wait a minute, you know, and Peter's actually going to talk about this in chapter three. It's been like 2000 years and Jesus hasn't returned. And so a lot of people mock, yeah, Jesus is coming back yet. Yeah, right. You know, um, he's going to really be ticked when he gets back, you know, and stuff like that. Um, and so people mock that. And the point is, in God's economy, 2,000 years is like two days, right? 1,000 years to the Lord is like a day, and a day is like 1,000 years. So he's basically been gone for two days. So, I mean, it's, it's soon that he's returning. Um, but that's not what the point is. It's not, it's not the length of time between when the judgment happens, but once the judgment happens, it's going to be swift. It's going to be fast. There's several examples of God's swift judgment um, one of them that hasn't occurred yet is in Revelation chapter 18, talking about the great city of Babylon. The whole, and the great city of Babylon at that time is going to be this financial, uh, economic, it's, it's going to be almost like the Big Apple kind of a, like, kind of a concept. This, it's all the commerce, all the wealthy, all, everything centered around this city, Babylon. And in verse 10, the merchants of the world are going to weep and mourn over the destruction of Babylon. And they're going to say this, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment came. One hour. Can you imagine the entire... Well, we can't imagine the world's economic system collapsing in an hour, right? I mean, everything's computerized. It wouldn't take much to just, you know, infect the world's systems with something that just causes everything to crash. Well, there's an example of God's swift judgment. There's another one in the book of Daniel. Daniel's been in Babylon. He's, it's towards the end of the 70 years that they've been in Babylon, and, and uh, he's an old man by now. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the king that was, was kind of, you know, interacted with Babel, or with uh, Daniel when he was a young man and and uh, he's passed away his son has reigned over the over Babylon that son has passed away now his grandson uh, by the name of Belshazzar he's in control of Babylon now and uh, he's partying and they take out the the the, uh, uh, the the silverware and the cups and stuff out of the, that was used in the temple that they had ransacked you guys know the story and they start partying they're having a, they're drinking wine and you know having a having a wing ding whatever you want to call it they're having a party of some sort and uh, all of a sudden a hand appears and a finger starts writing on the wall and it's kind of interesting because you read the Hebrew, it's like Belshazzar basically had to change his pants after that happened. I mean, literally, it's how it's described in the Hebrew. But anyways, they're like freaking out. And the, and the interpreters, the magicians, nobody can interpret what this is. So finally, one of the, one of the people, I don't know if it was, maybe it was the wife of the, of the king, her mother, what, his mother, whatever, says, there's this old guy, this prophet of the Hebrews, and, and, and uh, he was able to interpret your grandfather's dreams and stuff. And so they bring Daniel, and Daniel looks at it, and he gives the interpretation. It's in Daniel 5, verse 26. He says, this is the interpretation of each word. Meanie, not meanie like bad guy, <laughs> meanie, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been di divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and it put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in, in the kingdom. I can tell you Daniel could care less about that because it says in the next verse, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And at that time is when the, the Babylon was no longer a world, world empire in one night. Now the Medes and the Persians are the next world empire. In one hour, or one night, one night an entire empire is wiped out and another empire is in control. In one night, uh, you know, uh, in one hour, Babylon's destroyed. God's judgment is swift. 
You might say, well, what's taking so long? The, I believe the reason why Jesus hasn't come back yet is because of his grace and his mercy. He's not wanting anyone to perish. You know, and so it's just his great patience and his great mercy. Because you look at the world around you and go, Lord, why haven't you come back yet? You read about all the wicked things that are happening in Afghanistan. Lord, why haven't you come back yet? He's not wanting that any should perish, that, that all should come to repentance. But when his judgment comes, it'll be swift. It won't be a lingering thing. It'll be swift. The third example of God's judgment is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And you can read about that in Genesis 19. Let me read a couple verses, 24 and 25. It says, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. I mean, everything was wiped out. And of course, with the flood, everything was wiped out in, that, in God's judgment there too. But I think what this is referring to, and it, it's true in both cases, is that God's judgment is total and it's complete. And then at the end of verse 6 there, Peter says, making them an example to those who would afterward live ungodly. And this is the fifth thing. God's past judgment serves as a present uh, warning for our time right now. All those things that we read, you know, it's like it's just not like cute stories to read and, you know, it's interesting. It, they're examples for you and I. They're warnings for the world around us. Um, and so going back to what Jesus said about his return in Luke 17 verse 26 and 27 Jesus says and as it was in the days of Noah so it will also be in the days of the son of man they ate they drank they married wives they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all so Jesus says when he before he returns it's going to be like it was during the days of Noah before the flood. Well, what was it like? Well, you can read in Genesis, but here's some things. First, we're told that men began to multiply on the face of the earth. And uh, we could really, it's an interesting concept, but, um, you know, you think about from the time of creation until the time of the flood, how big was the world? How, 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 big, how large was the population of the world? And I think it was just phenomenally large prior to the flood. Men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Well, we certainly have that, you know, I, I don't know how, how, what size the world's population is right now, but it, it's growing faster and faster and faster. It says that the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And, you know, there's different people that interpret that different ways, so I'm not going to make a dogmatic statement about it. But I believe there was some sort of demonic activity. There was some sort of demonic collusion with people and stuff. And look at our society today how demonic things are just, they're, they're elevated and they're worshiped and they're focused. You know, there's so much demonic stuff um, going on today. Wickedness of man was great in the earth. And, I, you know, I don't even think I need to comment on that. We, we see that all the time. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's like they've gone so bad. There's just everything they think, everything they think about, everything that they Focus on, it, it's all evil. It's all evil. And then finally, the earth was filled with violence. And so, you know, we look at our world around us and we go, yeah, it looks like the days of Noah. It really is more and more. Jesus also said this in verse 28 and verse 30, through 30 of, verse, of Luke 17, excuse me. Likewise, so not just like the days of Noah, but likewise as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So what was it like in the days of Lot there in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, Jude gives us that commentary. He says that they had given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. So sexual immorality of all kinds, it just, 
They just they, they've given themselves over to it. Romans talks about people that are given over to those things just because uh, they, they've rejected rejected God, rejected Christ, rejected His principles, and and God just gives them over to the lusts of their hearts, and and it gets really bad really quick. Ezekiel's got an interesting. Uh, uh, there's a passage of scripture, I should say, in, in Ezekiel that talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want to read this to you because I, th I think it's interesting. It says, it's in Ezekiel 16, verse 49 and 50, if you're taking notes. This is what it says. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, an abundance of idleness, Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. You know, sexual immorality and in particular homosexuality, and, 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 you know, it's been around forever. It's been around as long as Sodom and Gomorrah, so it's not, it's like not a new concept. But, you know, I, I can remember in the beginning, when I was younger, you know, People were what they say, you know, in the closet. Still, it was it was kind of still, you know. You didn't you didn't openly proclaim it. In most cases, maybe in some cases you did, but look at our society today, man. It's not it's not only it's out in the open, but if you don't agree with it, you're the evil person. If you even if you know you you have to celebrate it with with people that are into that lifestyle, or you're the evil people. You know, the Bible says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. We're at that place right now. So I look at our society and go, man, we are ripe for the Lord's return. And uh, that's why I think that conference is going to be a very interesting conference uh, this year in particular. Well, that's a lot of bad news. I see a lot of, a lot of straight faces, straight faces, a lot of, you know, it's like, that is kind of, that's a bummer, right? I mean, if I ended up the sermon today and said, that's it, let's go, it'd be like, well, that was kind of a... <laughs> I'm depressed. Well, that's the bad news. But here's the good news. The good news is God's deliverance for the believer in Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter's going to focus on next. God's deliverance for the believer. You know, one of the things that really struck me when I was studying this passage of Scripture, and it's something that I think is worthy of note, God did not spare um, the ancient world, but he spared Noah and his family. Right? We read that in Scriptures. God did not spare the wicked inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he delivered Lot and his daughters. We read about that. But God never spared any angels. He never spared any angels. And it's interesting. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2.16, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. They're in some sort of, they have a, they, again, they are higher in creation order than mankind. So they have, a, they have a more responsibility. They have a greater view of God and his glory. They have, they've been given more. And so they're held to more account. And, and Jesus Christ didn't die for any angels, but he died for mankind. God loves the world. He loves people. In fact, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. When we say that, he's talking about the people of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's judgment is just. Or I should say, well, it is just, but it's certain. We talked about that. It's impartial. It's swift. It's total and complete, but here's the biggest thing. It's entirely avoidable. God's judgment is entirely avoidable. God's heart is not to destroy. God's not just waiting like, I can't wait till judgment day, man, I'm going to rain. No, that's not God's heart. God's heart is that nobody perishes, that everybody comes to repentance. And, you know, we see a picture of this when God was announcing his intentions to Abraham he appeared to Abraham to tell him that he would have a son, that they'd have, a, that him and Sarah would have a son. But he also says, uh, "Should I reveal to him what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah?" And so they're standing on a, on this hill overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah, and and Jesus, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, is speaking to Abraham about the fact that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because their sins have just gotten to the point where he's got to do something. And in Genesis chapter 18. I'll read this to you, verse 22. 
says, Then the men have turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I'll spare the, all the place for their sakes. If there's 50 people, I don't know how big Sodom was, but if there's 50 people, then I'll spare the city on behalf of those 50 people. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you all destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. God's heart is not to destroy the wicked. God wants to see them come to repentance. Judgment is entirely avoidable. The lake of fire, God has created it. It was created for the devil and his angels. It was never created for mankind. And we say, well, then why, when we read the book of Revelation, why are, man, why are men going to be cast into the lake of fire? Well, the reason why is because salvation is found only in Christ Jesus. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other way to have your sins uh, washed away, to be forgiven. It's, it's only through Jesus Christ. And if a person rejects Christ's deliverance, they are by their own volition choosing their judgment. Judgment will be inevitable for them. They're reserving themselves for God's judgment. But God doesn't send anyone there. They send themselves by their rejecting Christ. Later on, not this morning, but later on, another week or so, we'll be looking in Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter says, The Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's God's heart. Now, what can we learn about God's deliverance for the believers, for the believer, for you and I? The angels that sin that we read about that are in Tartarus, uh, they are awaiting God's judgment, um, and that judgment is reserved for them, for you and I. And Peter wrote this in his first epistle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So while these wicked angels, hell is reserved for them. They're, they're in chains of darkness awaiting that. It, they've got their reservations. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're a believer this morning, you've got revelation, revelations. You've got reservations too, eternal life. I don't know about you, but man, what, what does that do to you? I, to me, that gives me so much comfort, so much security. You know, I don't, I don't get all, yeah, I see everything that's going on in the world. I don't get stressed out about it. I don't like it, but I don't get stressed out about it because I've got a reservation. Have you ever traveled across the country? You know, I remember in the days years ago when I was a kid and we would go traveling, and one of the things that I, my brothers and I used to do, we stop somewhere, we get those pendants, you know, the gas stations, those felt pendants with the names of the city or the sports team or whatever. That's all we did. But I remember, I never remember my parents stressing out. They would be driving down the road and they'd go, oh, there's a vacancy sign. We'd pull in and a little strip, you know, little, the little dinky motels, you know, that's where we would stay. And it'd be, there'd never be an issue. I don't ever remember there being an issue. But I have traveled now and I've gone places and like, 
there's nothing available. There's no, yeah, I didn't make a reservation. Oh man, we've got to drive to the next city. You know, we got to drive to the next city. We might as well just drive through the night because we're not finding a place to stay unless we sleep in a, in a rest stop, which you can only do that for a few hours. You know, what a comfort it is when you have a reservation and you go, you know what? I'm, I'll get there. I'm not going to stress out about it. I'm going to enjoy the journey because I've got a reservation. That's the way you and I as believers should be living our lives right now. And enjoying the journey, enjoying the life that we have. God's blessed us with so many things. So let's enjoy it. And I'm not saying let's just go out and have pleasure and, you know, buy a fishing boat and, you know, go out and go fishing. I, I just bought a fishing boat. So <laughs> but what I mean is let's be filled with joy. Let's, let's preach a sermon of righteousness by being joyful believers. There's a lot of darkness going, a lot of, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of hatred. Man, let's be filled with Christ's love and, and, and joy. Anyways, we have a reservation. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have a reservation reserved in heaven for you. The first thing we can learn about God's deliverance for the believer is that his deliverance is certain. And if that weren't enough, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. He says that we've also been sealed and, and we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So not only have this reservation, but we've got a guarantee. We've got this down payment that Christ has given to us, and that is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It's God's guarantee. So we can live our lives joyfully as believers right now. We have the first example of God's deliverance for the believer, and that is in Noah. It's interesting, if you look at Genesis chapter 6, the first few verses, uh, it, it just talks about the increasing corruption on the earth. And it's getting so bad, look, God says, i got to wipe them out. I'm, I'm grieved that I created them. But then we get to verse 8, and this is where we're introduced to Noah. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the, well, Noah's name is mentioned before that, but this is the first time we read about him as, as a person. He found grace in the eyes. I love that. It's not like, well, Noah did a bunch of good things, and so God decided to spare him. The very first thing we read is God found grace. Uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the second thing we can learn about God's deliverance for the believer. It is entirely based on his grace. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful for that, that it's based on his grace and not my performance, because I would never make it if it was based on my performance. It's based on his grace. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's all God's. It's all Jesus Christ doing. All the praise and glory goes to him. And because God's deliverance is based on his grace, and because it's certain and we have his guarantee, we have a reservation in heaven, we can walk in God's deliverance now. We don't have to wait. We can walk in God's deliverance. We can live as delivered people now. In fact, Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. We've been delivered. Let's live like delivered people now. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6, verse 8. And then verse 9 of Genesis 6, it says, This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. I am so glad verse 9 follows verse 8. Because if verse 9 was before verse 8, you know, be like, okay, well, Noah, really, he was a good guy. No wonder why Jesus, you know, no wonder why he was delivered. It's not that way. He first found grace, and now he's living his life as a result of that. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And for you and I, Paul writes this in Galatians 5, 16, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Man, we have that within us. We can walk in the spirit, just like Noah walked with God. Verse uh, 5 of chapter 7 in Genesis, it says, And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And he was just obedient. Whatever God said, it's like, okay, I'm going to do it. No questioning, no, no hesitation. He did all that God commanded him to do. 
In fact, he's recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the Faith Hall of Fame chapter. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Divinely warned of things not seen. What did Noah not see? Never seen rain before. Prior to the flood, the earth was watered by a mist that would come up. Uh, you read about it in, in the book of Genesis about the Garden of Eden. There was a mist. They'd never seen rain before. So God tells Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood, and you need to build an ark. And uh, so Noah builds this ark. He's never seen rain. So because he's never seen rain, he's never seen flooding. But hey, God says he's going to do this. So you know what? I'm going to obey him. And so God tells him to build an ark, and Noah builds an ark. Why build a large floating barge on dry land for something that nobody's ever seen before? Can you imagine the mocking that he endured? And he did it. He, it took 120 years. So 120 years of mocking. Maybe you're in a new job, and you've been mocked for about three weeks or so, and it's like, man, it's really hard. Try 120 years. <laughs> 120 years. Oh, man, I'm a lightweight when it comes to that. <laughs> Noah walked in obedience, even though he had never seen rain, or never seen flooding, and he had never constructed an ark before. He's not a shipbuilder. All he did was, you know what? God said, this is how you're going to build it. So Noah said, okay, I'll just do whatever God said. God calls you and I to do stuff we've never done before. But you know what? Just follow him. Just obey him. He'll, he'll do the work. He just wants you and I to be willing and available to serve him, and he'll do the rest as we submit to him. And that's exactly what we see pictured in Noah. The second example of God's deliverance for the believer, believe it or not, is Lot, verse 7 and 8, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. If we did not have... Um, 2 Peter verses 7 through 8, if we didn't have that, could we tell that Lot was righteous? It's only, it's only because of what Peter says here, because you go, oh, righteous Lot? Why do I say that? You know, Noah's mentioned in Hebrews 11, I read that verse to you, the faith hall of fame. Lot's not. Noah's mentioned in other passages of scripture having to deal with his righteousness. Ezekiel 14, 14, um, it says this, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. And basically it's like, man, these guys are so righteous, but they can't even, they can't even, their righteousness isn't enough for Judah, the nation of Judah. Everybody's going to be judged for their own sin. But even if Noah was here, you know, he'd only save himself. But anyways, the Bible's talking about Noah's righteousness. We don't read anything about that, about Lot. We just read this in 2 Peter, righteous Lot. Who was Lot? Well, he was Abraham's nephew. And both he and Abraham, they acquired herds, flocks, livestock. And they had herdsmen that were, that were you know, taking care of their herds. And uh, pretty soon they had so many people, so many flocks, so many herdsmen that it was like they were stepping over each other and it was becoming an issue. The land was too small for both of them. It was time to separate. And so Abraham said, Lot, you pick the land that you want to settle in. Whatever you choose, I'll go the opposite direction. He just left it open to, to, to let Lot choose whatever he wanted. And so in Genesis 13, verses 10 through 12, and Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord. Must have been a beautiful place. Like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Interesting, if you think back to Abraham's life, remember when, you know, he's the, he's the father of our faith, right? He's this great man of faith, but he wasn't, very, he wasn't a very great man of faith at certain times in his life. There's a progression in his life. And at one time he goes to Egypt because he's, he's, he's afraid of what's, you know, the famine that's in the land. God said, I'm giving you this land. And he goes with his wife to Egypt. And you know the story. He was afraid that she was going to get taken by the Pharaoh. So he said, man, just tell everybody you're my sister, you know, and all that stuff. Goes. Well, Lot was with him. 
And so Lot saw all the, the, all the beauty of the world. And so Abraham, you know, he kind of showed Lot just by going there. And so, you know, Abraham's, you know, there's a little bit of responsibility there anyways. Lot's like, man, this is just like Egypt. This is awesome. So then the Lord, or excuse me, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. And they separated from each other. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Abraham stayed in the place where God's promise was, that land of Canaan. Lot chose what looked good to him. This looks good. It's appealing. Well, later on in Genesis chapter 14, a bunch of kings go to war against a bunch of other kings. I won't go into their names or anything like that. But one of the kings that's captured, because one side wins, one, one of the kings that's captured in this battle is the king of Sodom. And all the people of the, kings of, of the kingdom of the city of Sodom, they're all taken captive. And in Genesis 14, 12 says, They also took Lot, Abraham's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So remember before... Lot sees this land, ah, this is great. And so he pitches his tent, it says, as far as Sodom. And now, a few chapters later, he's taken captive, and he's living in Sodom. So he went from outside of Sodom, now he's in Sodom. Well, he and his, the inhabitants of Sodom are delivered by Abraham and his allies. You can read about that in Genesis uh, 19. Or, excuse me, in Genesis 14. But if you go down five chapters later in Genesis 19, Lot's back in Sodom again. You know, he, he, I think the Lord allowed, brought Abraham along to, to like deliver Lot out of Sodom. Here's your chance, Lot. Yeah, you shouldn't have been with these guys in the first place, but now here's your chance. You can, you can get away from there. Five chapters later, he's back in there again. He never left. And that's when the two angels came to Sodom to destroy the city. Genesis 19.1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The gate of Sodom, that's kind of significant when you read that, because what that means, the gate was where the elders of the city, like the city council, hung out, and they made all the important decisions. That's also where all the major transactions took place. And so it was where the, kind of the important, influential people sit. So here, not only is Abraham, or Lot, he was first dwelling near, now he's dwelling in, now... He's like on the city council, and, and here he is in Sodom. It appears to me anyways that Lot lived a life of compromise. And yet here scriptures declares, and scripture can't lie, he was righteous. Does it kind of seem awkward? Here's this guy that's just, it seems like he's just going after the flesh, and yet Bible says that he was a righteous man, and he was delivered by the two angels sent to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of Paul, what he said in 1 Corinthians 3.15, talking about the judgment seat of Christ. We're all going to be judged as believers for how we lived our lives. And some of us, we're going to be, you know, what you've done, we're going to receive crowns. And you're going to want crowns. You might, I've, I've heard people say, ah, oh, man, I don't need no crowns. Guaranteed you're going to want crowns. Why? Because when you see Jesus Christ and his glory and how worthy he is, you're going to want to give everything that you've got. Lord, here's this crown. Here's this crown. That's what they're going to do. Everyone's going to throw their crowns down at the feet of Jesus. And when you get done, you go, oh, man, I don't have any more crowns. I wish I had more crowns. So you're going to want crowns. You're going to want crowns simply because you're going to want to give them to Jesus Christ when you see him in his glory. Well, Paul talks about believers who, like Lot, they've gone after the flesh. They're just, they're just, they're, they're just, they're in love with the world and the things of the world. And yet they're believers. It doesn't say they're not believers. They're believers. But it says this: If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You think about Lot. You know, the choices Lot made. The Bible says he's righteous. He's delivered. But look at the cost it, it, it took on his family. His wife perished. His daughters later on, in their chapter two later, they do some very terrible things. And I think it's because of Lot's example, a bad example, as a father that was going after the flesh. 
goes back to the point, the first point, and we can't, I can't reiterate this enough. God's deliverance is based on his grace. So I'm thankful for the picture of Lot. I'm thankful for the picture of Noah. It's all God's grace in our lives. So Lot, says, was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And so he's living there. I mean, he sees what's going on. I mean, he doesn't like it. It's not like he's like, oh, yeah, this is cool. No, he's grieved over what he sees. But the point is, he could have left. He could have left. He, he had a choice, but he chose not to. And we see that in the book of Genesis. Many believers, they put themselves into situations where they grieve over what they see, the situation around them. But some of them, it's, they've put themselves into that situation. You know, when I'm, when I'm doing premarital counseling and I'm, I'm seeing a believer, you know, and they're, they're going after an unbeliever, I'm like, man, you don't do this. I, I've had to say no to somebody who was a believer and yet their, their spouse was uh, an alcoholic. I'm like, no, you, man, this is a train wreck. Don't get married. Don't do it, man. You're, you're just, you're, you're putting yourself in a place where later on it's going to be an issue in your life. And uh, anyways, many believers have that choice but they make the wrong choice, and as a result, they're like this. They're like Lot. They're grieving over what they're seeing in their lives and what's going on around them. There's two words of warning. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Sometimes they think, you know what? I can handle it. I'm a Christian. I, you know, I, I, can, I can be in that situation. I can, you know, it's, I, can, I can handle it. Man, be careful. Be careful, because pride will get you every time. And then also this, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. You think, man, I'm in that situation, I'll, I'll lead all those people to Christ. What's generally gonna happen is probably they're gonna take, they're gonna wear you down in your faith and in your, in your witness as a believer. So many believers put themselves into that type of situation, but there are other believers that end up in that situation. No choice of themselves. You know, I think of, I think of the person who, you know, uh, they were heathens, and then they, one of them, like the wife, she puts her trust in Christ as her Savior, and she's born again. She's coming to church. Her husband's still a heathen. They're in that situation. It's not her choice, but there she is, and, and she's grieved by what her husband's doing. I, I've heard that over and over again in different situations. Many other believers are put into those situations through no choice of their own. And the fourth point, and this is the last point, is true for both of those scenarios. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust for, for punishment for the day of judgment. God knows how to deliver us. Man, he, you know, in Lot's case, he grabbed Lot by the, I mean, the angels, they literally had to grab Lot's hand and rush him out of there before the fire came down to destroy them. I mean, it was like, Lot was like, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, dawdling, right? Man, the angels like, man, they grabbed his hand and, and yanked him out of there, him and his daughters and his wife. Um, well, I want to finish with this passage of scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above uh, what you are able, beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We have two different pictures of deliverance. We have Noah, this guy who walked with God, man. He's commended throughout the Bible for his righteousness and stuff. And we have Lot, who he was righteous, he had a relationship with God, and he was delivered, but his story isn't quite as glowing as Noah. And you know, that's the choices that we have as believers this morning. How do we want to live our lives? Do, do we want to live our lives like Noah, or are we kind of compromised and we're living like Lot? And you might have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and praise God if you do, I pray that you do, um, but there's gonna be regrets if you don't start changing your life now and living for Christ. And so that's the, I think that's the thrust of what I wanted to share with us this morning. Why don't you stand and let's go Lord in prayer.